There we go. That'll, it'll last. Yeah, we're going to be in, in Ruth chapter 2, and we're also going to include Titus chapter 2. Because what, what I wanted to do to end this is the way that Ruth uses and describes Boaz and Ruth, it describes both of them as worthy, a wor- Boaz is a worthy man, and Ruth is an excellent woman, which that's picked up in Proverbs, so we'll talk about Ruth next week. And so really what we're going to do is, is say, how does the gospel change men? What can we learn about man, manhood according to the Bible from Boaz? And there's going to be overlap, you'll see. It's not, you know, even though I'm going to talk to men mainly through, through this sermon, I'm really I'm talking at me because I'm, I'm learning too. So I'm sitting down in the pew next to you. And I want you to see that the Bible has a particular picture, a particular way that the gospel calls us to as men, um, as, as leaders in the home, as leaders and servants in the workplace. You know, wherever we are, the gospel has a particular way that God changes men. And it's actually much different, I think, than, than the average unbeliever or the person outside of the church would expect. Because if you ask the average unchurched person, what does the Bible say about manhood? All they're, they're going to say patriarchy. Men rule, you know, women rule. <laughs> you know, not quite that bad, but you know, they, would, they would argue that, that the Bible just is pro-man and, and doesn't put women in a positive light. And when you read Ruth, I mean, Boaz takes some initiative. I mean, he... He cares for Ruth in chapter 2, but when you get to chapter 3, it's Ruth who's poking and prodding and pushing Boaz to be a better man. And there's, there's things we can learn from this. And so let's read it. I'm going to ask the kids if they'll come help me for the beginning after the prayer, and then we'll, we'll get started. So let's pray. We'll read the text and pray. It says, Now Naomi in chapter 2, verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And this is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you give us a picture of, um, of restored humanity, of, what, of how interacting and living life with you changes us and gets us to get step out of ourselves and to, to love our neighbors. And so I pray you would use this time to mold us into the image of your son, Jesus. And we pray this for his name and for his glory. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask that the kids, if they'll come up and help me here. I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and um, I just, just want to see what you think, because I know what I think. And <laughs> you guys can just grab a seat. That'll be fine. You don't have to. So I'm going to ask you some questions about what you think men should be like. So this should be fun. All right. So I ask you this, what, what should, when you think of a man, a guy, what, what should they act like? I'm going to sit down, I feel like I'm hovering. <laughs> a servant of God. You should be a servant of God? Good, Jordy. What else? Smart. You should be smart? You should have, have all the answers? Mature. Mature? What do you mean by mature? They should know what to do in situations. Okay, yeah, so know what to do. I'll, I'll repeat it so you can hear it. Know what to do in the situations they're in. Or at least look like they do. <laughs> what else? Maybe I can change the question. What do you see in your, your dads or the guys you look up to that you think men should be like? Yeah. Strong. Strong. Good word. Yep. 
Lo loving? That's right, George. You know, muscles. Huh? You should be able to understand, ready to come down and make sure you know what he's saying. Should be wise, yeah. Um, what shouldn't men be like? Yeah. Rude and unfortunate. Rude and unfortunate. <laughs> Unfortunately rude. Anything else? Yeah. yeah, it should be nice. That's good. Any anything else? They shouldn't be dum dums. They shouldn't be dum dums. <laughs> yeah. Now you're just being silly. <laughs> yeah. It, the opposite of everything we said, right? Should they should get angry and get violent? Yes, no, maybe. Yeah. Just give you something to think about. We're going to talk about what... They shouldn't, the they shouldn't break the law. They should be law keepers. Good. And one of the things we're going to talk about is if you hear nothing else today, Jesus shows us what men should be like. That he's the only perfect man. That even your dads who are strong, uh, not dum-dums, mature. Um, right? They're looking to Jesus to see what men should be like. And that's, that's what the Bible tells us. That he's... He's a man for us, and he's a man that we can imitate because he loves us. You can go ahead and take a seat. Thanks for your help. <laughs> it's always dangerous. You don't know what's going to come out. But, <laughs> but it is helpful to know. Um, well, I asked my son this morning, what should a man be like? And he, his comparison was the man with the yellow hat from Curious George. <laughs> so you can see where he's at. <laughs> a worthy man. <laughs> now, the, the word here to describe Boaz is not just a worthy man, an excellent man. It's actually a warrior term, a mighty man. Um, it's, it's, what, it's the Hebrew word they use to describe all of David's uh, soldier friends who go into battle with him, a mighty word, a, a Hebrew hero, if you will. And these are the great men, the strong men, uh, those who lead. And because there's no war in, in the, the book of Ruth, right, there's no fighting, we're talking about Boaz being a man of importance, of wealth, of prominence, of somebody who's respectable, uh, who's somebody to be imitated. It's a picture of an older man, because that's what we're told. He's an older guy. He's well-respectable because of his faith, his maturity, his strength, his abilities. He's somebody that people respond to. A worthy man. And a worthy man, and if you remember, in the culture of judges, where there, there aren't very many worthy men. It's, it's the days where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and godliness is, is a rarity. So that Boaz is a godly man in a culture of godlessness. Some, somebody, I think the way you're, we're supposed to see Boaz is, is somebody to imitate, a Hebrew hero, somebody to look up to. You know, I, I think of you know, Boaz as somebody we're supposed would want to follow into battle, into life, in, in your workplace, that kind of character. Right? And in our culture, I mean, you're, I don't want to name names, but I mean, you can see just in the election cycle, we're confused as to how important culture, uh, character is. Because on the one hand, we want character. We want somebody that we can trust. But in our everyday lives, we don't actually live to the level of where we want those people to be. I mean, you can talk about politics, you can think about people around you. 
I don't want to name names. But really, we, we live in a culture where we struggle to understand what men should be like, what they should live like. Um, what, what does the Bible say about men? I'm aware that when guys start talking about manhood, um, they beat guys up for not being good enough and then say, be like me. I mean, I've, I've heard those sermons. I'm hopefully not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, but the picture of what the gospel does all the way through church history is the gospel restores men. He makes them into what they would have been if sin had never been into the world. Right? That men who look and long to and work to look like their Father in heaven. Right? And so what does that look like? I can give you all kinds of examples to start out. A guy named Nicholas Radley. Yeah, see, so you'll remember this, Nick. Uh, Hugh Latimer. There were two guys in six, uh, 1555 who were burned at the stake for their faith. This is in the midst of the Reformation. That they wouldn't recant their belief that God alone saves through Jesus alone, and they didn't want to act like the culture around them. And this is, what, this is a pretty famous quote, that as the flames were getting higher and hotter, uh, Latimer turned to his friend, Mr. Ridley, and this is what he said, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. Right? Toughen up. <laughs> he says, We shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England that shall never be put out as they stand there and die like their Savior, who they, they died imitating. Play the man. Be like Boaz, a worthy man, courage, faithfulness, self-control. I mean, you follow church history, you got a whole legacy, a whole... I mean, you don't have, we don't have time to name all the men. Paul, all the sufferings he went through. Uh, nearly all the apostles gave their lives for the sake of their Savior as they, they worked hard to imitate their Savior. I think of Athanasius in the 4th century, the African uh, monk and bishop who essentially took on the world because he said, Jesus is God and man, and I'm not going to back down because that's who the Scriptures say he is. And for a quarter of his ministry, he lived alone in exile. He played the man. Uh, or Martin Luther, the German monk in the, the Reformation who stood there with the Bible in one hand, a pint of beer in the other, yelling at the Pope, and he changed the world. Because he, he left a legacy where he poured his life into other men uh, to do the same. And the Protestant church was born. Or I think of David Brainerd, the American missionary. See, I'm trying to show these are different examples of different cultures. The gospel applies to men all across the world. Uh, David Brainerd was an American missionary to Native Americans in New Jersey back in the 1800s who died at 29 because of tuberculosis and who was sick most of the time. And his story inspired, I could say, argue thousands, if not millions of men to be faithful in suffering. I mean, the list goes on and on, but the picture is that when you see a worthy man in the Bible... Um, Gets men motivated and excited to say, I want to be like that. To, to follow them as they have followed Christ. And that Jesus, King and Captain, the firstborn Son of God, he's in the business of teaching men to be men, to restore them into the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness as God intended. All right, and so that's what we read in Titus. And I hope you caught that. That the grace of God... Jesus has appeared to train us to renounce ungodliness 
and worldliness to live self-controlled lives. And so my argument this morning is going to be pretty simple, is that Boaz is a worthy man whose character has been shaped and trained by the grace of God in his time. And so in that regard, he's going to be a model of faith for us. And I want to teach, who's going to teach us to, be, to live self-controlled lives, dignified, sober, steadfastness, and love. All right. And so let's, let's look at this. What is man's problem according to the Bible? We're going to see a problem, we're going to see a picture, and where we get the power to do these things. Man's problem, according to the Bible, all we hear is we're called to be worthy men. I think the problem is we have no agreed definition on what that looks like. Because... In our culture, as I hinted at already, we have a masculinity crisis. I mean, if you've read the articles online or in your newspaper, they write and say men are still living in their parents' basement. They've got Star Wars bedsheets. They're playing video games to all hours of the night. They're avoiding responsibility. What's wrong with the world? Men are. You guys stink. You know, be encouraged. <laughs> Which doesn't really get me off the couch to go do something. It's telling us, really, what we already know. That we're not what we want to be. That we're further from where we think we should be. And it's, as I've listened to sermons in my short life, I mean, I've heard similar things in the church. Um, Good sermons, sometimes I need to be yelled at. But really, it's saying what's wrong with the church is there are not enough men who are doing what God has called them to do. Because they, too, have Star Wars bedsheets and play too many video games and don't know how to relate to the opposite sex. That we're immature, to use the kids' words. And, I mean, there probably is some truth to that. I, I mean, I, I can see that in myself. But then you add in uh, the culture in which we live, where we demand character from our leaders, but then at the same time, that, that same moral character, uh, we... we discourage in our young men. We say things, boys will be boys. Locker room kind of conversations just happen. And then you add in just the reality that as culture has changed, guys don't have models to look up to anymore. We don't have, I mean, in Saratoga County alone, at least 25% of children are growing up without fathers, living, present, active in their lives. That's just single-parent homes. And those are old statistics from a few years ago. That, that we are trying to figure out manhood in a culture, in a world uh, who are deprived of daddies, of, of models. That's what Eric Mason calls daddy deprivation. And so when I know as I'm getting ready to teach this, that we have a wide range of backgrounds and cultures, but, but the reality is we struggle to know what a worthy man looks like. I struggle to know what a worthy man looks like. I have the examples in my lives, in, in my past. And so this is where Boaz, I think, is a very big help. All right, so what does the Bible say the problem with men is? Let's, let's just nail it down to one thing. If, so I'm going to speak in generalities because we don't have all morning. All right. According to Titus 2, I don't know if you caught it, it was a word that was repeated several times. It's self-control. You can find it here. 
It says older men ought to have self-control and teach younger men self-control. It said older women should have self-control to put down the wine bottle and, and, and teach younger women to have self-control. And so just focus on manhood here. It, you think about everything that, that we want to blame men for, their anxiety or anger or their laziness or their lack of courage, their immaturity, um, cowardice, whatever you, th you think of. The Bible says that underneath all that, that what we need as men is to learn self-control. Uh, th that anger, the rage, uh, temper, lust, all these things are just the tip of the iceberg of what's sticking out from underneath our hearts that we don't have self-control. And that, that really is the essential ingredient, I think you could argue, to biblical manhood. And the kids use the words like, like maturity, um, somebody to imitate, wise, you know, having everything together. The Bible's word for that is self-control. If you have self-control, it's going to manifest. You're going to, your life's going to look a bit like Boaz in these moments. So we've got we to gotta nail this down. What is self-control? The way Paul talks about it is in two ways. Here in, in Titus, he says, you should be able to have a thought and use that thought to tell your body what to do. And that your mind has the power, the control, the will to tell your body to get off the couch and go to work in the morning or to not watch that inappropriate show or whatever the, the act of righteousness might be. And it's it's self-control. That my mind is telling my body what to do, which is the complete opposite of the world in which we live, where we say our body should tell our minds how to think and what to do. Second, Galatians 5 uses a different word for self-control. It's, it's two words put together. It's, it's e your ego, yourself, and, and power. And so the word for self-control is your ability to, to, to have power and mastery over yourself. I mean, it's, it's similar, but it's just talking about an internal thing. So negatively, right, self-control is what we think. It's just the ability to say no. You know, I'm not going to click on that website, or I'm not going to explode and tell that person what I really think of them in this moment, because it's not wise or kind. Right? Self-control. Or positively, you could turn it around and say that self-control is the ability to, to live a life of discipline. Uh, to, to say yes to the things that are important, to, to know where to go and how to get there. Self-control. And to not get distracted you think of like an athlete, for example. The athlete has the ability and the self-control to, to know that if I drink uh, five gallons of soda a week, it's going to affect my athletic performance, so I'm going to say no. And they also know that I need to get the right sleep, the right diet. You know, they work and have the ability, the control, the discipline to get to where they want to be. And the humility to listen to those who know better. You see, this is self-control, and according to Paul, these are the things that we're lacking. And that as you get older, you start to learn these things. We're supposed to teach younger men how to get there. That we, deep down, as men, 
can't hold back our deepest desires. We let our bodies tell us what to do rather than, than our mind, our faith. Right. I mean, I picture it this way. Do you remember the, the Greek hero Odysseus? You know, having to read him in high school? Uh, he was, he was a, a worthy man in Greek culture. He was somebody who would go out with a sword and he'd fight all kinds of monsters. And there was this legend, the legend of the sirens. You remember, there were these creatures who, could, who had this spot on an island and they had such a beautiful voice, a beautiful song. It would draw men. And men just had, they would go crazy listening to these creatures sing. And then they would sail towards the island and be dashed on the rocks and destroyed. And Paul's saying, well, you remember how Odysseus uh, gets through it. He, he says, I want to hear this voice without being destroyed. And so what he does is he tells all of his men to, pu to put earplugs in, but to tie Odysseus to the mast so he can hear the voice. And he says, no matter what I say, no matter what I do, no matter how much I scream, don't untie me. And just hold me back. And that's how they got through it. And so you got this picture of what Paul's saying about self-control is that really we live our lives unable to put earplugs in. We need to be tied down. And really the only way we know how to learn self-control is to get other people to hold us back. Right, just, just get the right internet filter to, to think about the shame that you would bring upon your family or your friends or your spouse. I mean, the, the way we're told to, to have self-control is just to stop it. You know, shape up. Be a man. <laughs> I mean, really, telling men to have self-control, I mean, the ways I've heard this, you, you can tell me after this is true for you, it's kind of like tying a lion up, showing them steak, and saying, you don't want that anymore, you're going to eat vegetables. Now control yourself. And we all know that if you take off the restraints, they're not going to go for, for the vegetables. And that's the problem. That's the problem, according to Paul, with men, that we struggled with self-control from childhood all the way up. Now, what we get next in Boaz, so we're going to go back to Ruth, is we get a portrait of a worthy man as someone who has learned self-control in these moments, right? I'm, I'm going to talk highly about Boaz, but what I don't want you to hear is that he's a perfect man. We get two snapshots of how he cared for Ruth in chapter 2, how he, cared for, how he was righteous in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, how he did the right thing. But we haven't seen his whole life. I mean, we've got to use our theology to recognize that Boaz is a sinner like you and me. But he is called a worthy man. So what we're getting is a picture of where a lifetime of walking with God has taken him. Now, how has God molded him and shaped him as a man? And so let's look at it, Ruth chapter 2. The first thing we hear from him is that he's God-centered. I mean, it's what we said before, that in Hebrew narratives, the first things people say tells you a lot about their character, and it's... it's doing that on purpose. Boaz's first words in verse 4 is, the Lord be with you as he comes to his men. And his first word is Yahweh. God. 
And that's the God's covenant name. And so if you, you stop and think about this, this is who Boaz is. The first thing we hear about him from him is that he is a guy who has entered into a covenant relationship with God in the Old Testament, that he has met the God of grace in the Old Testament. He's entered into this relationship. I know we tend to think of the Old Testament God as cranky and mean and judgmental, but that's Boaz has taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb and entered into relationship with the God who's brought his, his people out of Egypt from the land of slavery. It's grace. Right. And so, I want you to see this, that Boaz is a picture of a man who's met God and is now going to show you what, what impact, how he's trying to live his life to look like God, to, to look like God his Father. All right. And we get five things. We get five pictures. One, we see Boaz is spending time with sinners. That's what the covenant is all about, God dwelling with people. And you see Boaz, the worthy man, going out into the field with these blue-collar guys who he has to tell them to be nice to the young lady. Don't be rude. Don't be crude. Restrain yourself. Get some control here. And he, he prays for blessing for these men, too. Right, so he's, that's what you see, a worthy man, a godly man, is not somebody who's so holy that they're not going to spend time with normal people. Boaz dwells with sinners. Now, second, we see that Boaz is a guy who gets God's justice. He does generous justice here in chapter 2. I mean, he, and remember, he gave like a month's salary to Ruth and Naomi. He's somebody who saw the poor, he saw the needy, and said, my resources are for me to use as a gift from God to bless my neighbors. So you could say this, biblical men dwell with sinners because they know themselves to be a sinner. You could say biblical men do generous justice, which means that all of our lives are not about getting our stuff. We're called to to be given to, to, to receive so that we would then bless those around us. I mean, I have to speak in generalities here, so we're going to keep moving. You get to see that biblical men are protectors. Right? God is a refuge. Boaz understands this. I mean, you hear him say to Ruth, you took refuge in the shadow of God's wings. Boaz is her protector. I mean, you could say it like this, that Boaz, so to speak, walked into the locker room and says, don't mess with her, you've got to deal with me. Or later, he protects Ruth's reputation as she goes home at dawn and gives her food to make it look like she'd been working all night. Biblical men are called to protect the the weak, the oppressed, the needy. Um, Not use our power for abuse and control and manipulation. Fourth, you can see that biblical men, according pictured by Boaz, are controlled by the revealed will of God. I mean, one of the, the interesting things, all I'm saying is that Boaz lives out God's law. That he does the right thing. He, he's trying to please his God. That God's law has got a hold of him, and it's just, it just comes out. Because I mean, you don't hear him saying, I'm going to take care of Ruth because it says in you know, Leviticus chapter 19, so and so. It's just... It's just natural. It's part of 
part of who he is. It's, it's an instinct that he has meditated on God's word to the point where he lives out his faith and righteousness. And I'm not the only one who said this. I mean, some of the Jewish teachers in the day would use Boaz and say, when you look at Boaz, here is God's law lived out in the flesh. Here is a man who gets how to live a righteous life. This is before, before Jesus, non-Christians saying this. They're saying, if you want to know how a biblical man should live, look at Boaz. He is God's law being pictured for you in the flesh. And so that means he must be a guy who not only knows God, he knows God's law, and he, he seeks to put it into practice. That's biblical manhood. Fifthly, and lastly here, you've got to pick categories because there's not that much time. The biblical men lead the way in showing mercy. I mean, he, he married Ruth. It was an act of mercy. It wasn't an obligation. He showed, an, this was an act of steadfast love, a, a, an act of kindness, an act of grace. He, he redeemed Ruth and Naomi and gave up his future the way he envisioned it to give them a future. It was one-way love. And so you picture all these things together, you could summarize it with Micah 6.8. You know, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. What, what does the Lord require of you to do? Justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is biblical manhood, and it applies really to everybody. So, so men, do you feel guilty yet? <laughs> you feel like you're, you don't measure up? I mean, this is a picture of a worthy man. This is where the gospel takes you. This is where I want you to see. This is, I'll take some pressure off, and then I'll put it back on again. And this is where... <laughs> Older men, this is what he's learned. He didn't wake up one day and put all these things into practice. It was, he was, righteousness wasn't beamed down. This is the result of self-control working itself out as he lived life in relationship with his God, as he walked humbly with his God. His actions are those of a lifelong disciple. So it takes pressure off because it means you don't have to get there right away, but it puts pressure on because it gets you to stop and say, what are you aiming at? What are you working towards? Is knowing God a goal in life as he's revealed himself in the scriptures? We're called to be teachers in our homes, to our families. Do you work to know God's will? I mean, even just knowing the basics, what do the Ten Commandments mean for me? To do justice and to love mercy, to be generous. I mean, the law says, don't steal, you should love the oppressed, the weak, the needy. But how do you put that into practice? You have, to, you have to know exactly what God's calling you to do. And that requires study. That requires work. And third, you could say you have to know God's mission. Are you aiming at that? Because this is the interesting part. Is when God, in the Old Testament, called his people, and we tend to think of him as just being one nation. But do you know who Boaz's mother was? is Rahab, like the Canaanite prostitute, that God, through grace, brought her in to be a part of his people as a picture of what the church will be, a people of all tribes, all tongues, all nations. And so when Boaz had the opportunity to care for Ruth, the Moabite, a foreigner, he knew this is, this is part of God's mission. 
I want other people, other tribes, other nations to know this God who's shared his grace with me. So, I mean, there it is. We get a picture of self-control, where self-control takes you. How do you get there? Where do you get the power? Because right, and, and, I know what happens with these kinds of messages is we hear God loves you unconditionally, but I go home feeling like just like dirt because I'm not there yet. Right, that it, we hear the expectations and it feels like too much, and it is. It really is too much. It's, it's hard to say, I want to be like Boaz in every moment. You're, not, you're going to be crushed if that's what you hear me saying. That is not what I'm saying. That's not what the scripture is saying. But this is how we deal with the law as men. We know what we should do and we don't do it. We hear these expectations and we're stuck with our shame. Brene Brown is a shame researcher. I don't know if you've heard of her at all, but she's, for a long time she went around just asking women about what they were ashamed of. And at one of her conferences, as she had given this speech, a, a husband, a dad, was there. And so he came up to her afterwards and said, you know, what have you learned about shame in men? And this is, this is what he, he said. Let's see if I can get the quote here. He said, what have you learned about us? And she said, well, I haven't done anything. I just study women. He said, well, that's convenient. And so she said, she felt the hair on the back of her neck stand up in defense. She said, why is that convenient? He said, look, we men have shame, a deep shame. Because when we reach out and say we, we aren't Boaz, so to speak, when we reach out and say we share our stories, we get the emotional junk beat out of us. I mean, he was tearing up as he said this. And just as Brene was about to make a comment about how hard men are on each other, and he said, no, before you say it's, not, it's the fault of the coaches or the bosses or the brothers and fathers, no, my wife and daughter are right there. You know, they would rather me see me die on top of my white horse than see me fall off and be vulnerable. I mean, you say you want us to be vulnerable, to be weak, to be honest, but come on. It makes you sick to see us like that. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> Really, we need Boaz to show us where God's taking us, but if you stop at Boaz and say, I need to be like him, you're going to get the emotional junk beat out of you. You're going to beat the emotional junk out of yourself. Because we need somebody who not only shows us a model of what we should be like, but somebody who gives us the power to keep the law, who gives us the motivation to do so, to get up off the couch. You know, something greater than us. And we see it. Boaz is the great-grandfather of David. And this is how we get to Jesus. Because remember David, how did he get a reputation of a man worth imitating? It's, it's the famous story. Right, this great man, this great warrior, David and Goliath. Right. You remember the story, you got this picture of Israel being attacked by the Philistines in the Old Testament. And you got one army here, Israel, and the Philistines over here, and Goliath, this giant of a man, comes out and says, all right, let's make a deal. Send your best man out to face me. And, and whoever wins will win the battle. Send out your champion. And Goliath, for 40 days, just yells, 
is there a worthy man? Your God stinks and you guys are all pansies. This is the paraphrase. (laughs) Just think about it. For 40 days, men heard what they should do. They should have courage. They should buck up the self-control to go out and to fight and to do the right thing. And everybody, including the king himself, stayed inside, hanging their head in shame because they didn't believe they could do it by their own power. They knew they couldn't do it by their own power. And along comes David, the scrawny shepherd boy who doesn't look like a king, who doesn't look like much. And he goes out with a sling and a passion that had been gripped for the reputation of his God. And you know the story. He slays the giant. And all of a sudden, as the giant falls and David picks up his his bloody head, the men behind David all of a sudden find their courage. And they go out and they charge and they hunt the Philistines down. That David's victory not only brought them up out of their shame, but got them motivated. Self-control, being gripped by something outside of yourself. And yet we know, unfortunately, that David failed that test himself. And so we need to keep going in this, the, the history. David failed that self-control test as he stole another man's wife and, and killed her husband. And that's when you get to Jesus, the perfect man. And it's the same picture of David and Goliath. You are called to be a worthy man. Get up and do the right thing. And everybody cowers in fear. I mean, all of history is an example of men who know they can't do it. And yet Jesus, you see him live out all these categories that we just talked about. God became man and lived with sinners and prayed for God's blessing on them. He he went out and protected the weak. He defended the sick. He healed them. I mean, as B.B. Warfield points out, that Jesus was led by his love for others into the world, forgetting himself for the sake of others, to be their protector, to be their refuge, to live out a life of sacrifice, a life of generous justice as he pours out his very self, his blood, for the well-being of mankind. And so here's what I want you to see this morning. Self-control and the law functions like Goliath in your life. It taunts, humiliates, and shames and says, you'll never measure up. I'm a failure. I'm nobody. You know, what have I done in my life? What gets you to come out of that shell to get you to, to run in faithfulness after Jesus, the captain, your king, to say, I know what I should do, and now I want to do what I should do because... I look at Jesus and realize he fought the war I could never fight. And because he won, I now have the power to, the desire, the affection, say, that is a worthy man. I want to follow and be like him. Because not only did he live the perfect life, but he lived it for us. He's, he's the law and grace in human flesh. They have to go together. Because when you see Jesus fight, you know, to, to cut off the head of the law, the curse, to cut off the head of death and Satan who taunts. It gives an immense freedom to go out and try, to take a step forward. And it gives us a direction to say, this is where we're going. This is where we're, 
God's going to take us. Because when I say Jesus willing to go through hell for my sakes, for a guy who was not worthy, who was controlled by what his body was telling him to do, or he's just scared to do the right thing at times, we see him say, I love you, and I'm going to go earn earn your respect, so to speak, and fall on the sword that should have come in your direction, God's wrath. That gets me up off the couch and say, I can, I can apologize today. <laughs> I, can, I don't want to go to work today because I don't feel like it, but i got to do the right thing. I'm going to love my neighbor. Or when I see Jesus, the worthy man, pouring out all his resources for his neighbors, I see that, that is a beautiful thing because he did that for me. I want to do that for others. So in conclusion, I mean, Boaz is this older man who teaches us. He gives us a beautiful picture, but he's just a shadow of the greater man to come, Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to end. How, do you, how does the gospel shape men? You've got to see that it's men and women, really. You see that God sends his son to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died. And he calls us righteous. He calls us worthy in him. And then says, now, let me teach you how to be what I've already called you to be. Let's work on this together. I mean, I think about it as a parent. My son, sons, plural, Ezra and Jonah, I I can't expect them to be perfect yet. I mean, I struggle with that. We all struggle with that as parents, right? But he's my son. Now I'm going to spend, just by virtue of being born into this relationship, and now I'm going to teach Jonah, I'm going to teach Ezra how to live life in relationship with me, to, to teach them how to, to be what, what we've declared them to be. It's, it's a direction. Right? Jesus says, My mission is to die for unworthy men so that my grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, would use a lifetime to teach us self-control. To, to, to have a man, a, a picture of a man, our captain and our king, to grip the affections and the imaginations of our heart. All right. You remember Lord of the Rings? And Aragorn, the king? <laughs> and he, he starts out as a ranger, a nobody, somebody who's hiding in the woods, and when he comes out and says, I am king, nobody wants to follow him because who are you? But when he draws out his sword and he goes to battle and says, I will go to hell if you will follow me, that's when men start to follow the once and future king. That's who we have in Christ. Biblical manhood is a call to look at your champion, Jesus, and be willing and humble to be taught by him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel uh, that shows us Jesus having self-control for us and taking our place. And so I pray for the men here in our church uh, that you would use these examples of self-control to motivate us uh, to, to live lives of faith. We thank you for the gift of grace that doesn't rub our face in our failure, but shows us that, that you love us as we are, despite the way we are in Christ. So we ask that you use this time 
to make us into the men that you would have us be, leaders in our homes, in our communities, and in this church. So may your grace, uh, may your grace uh, motivate us and drive us to deeper trust in you. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.